Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this programme, I am joined by a different CEO, CFO, COO, director, secretary, chairman or president to truly discover who those people are that get up every morning and make this country work. We discuss everything on the show from championing innovation to operating in a locked down nation and of course the success that makes all of it worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. At a time where the nation is back in full lockdown and the Prime Minister's top COVID team are mulling over the prospect of further restrictions, happy 2021, I'm joined by Mike Newell, Sales Director at iSumo Limited. iSumo is a business which designs, builds and supports complex network infrastructures which have been integral to keeping us all connected and keeping this country running during these times of minimal physical interaction. Without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome Mike Newell onto the show. Very warm welcome to you today, Mike, and thank you ever so much for joining us on the show today. Great, it's good to be here. Now, Mike, it isn't the first time, of course, that you've joined us on the uh, the programme. And the last time we spoke, actually, we talked a little bit about the ongoing COVID-19 situation and, of course, how that has had an impact on British industry and business. Now, during that conversation that we had back in October of 2020, you commented that the furlough scheme was due to run out at the time, of course, and would be replaced by the new job support scheme, which would bring with it a whole host of new challenges for business. Now, of course, since then, we've been back in lockdown down we've come out of it gone back into lockdown again and the furlough scheme as it was has been extended until the end of april 2021 do you think that chancellor rishi sunak was absolutely right to take that step and indeed in your eyes should it perhaps even go on beyond then to continue to help businesses through i think he's actually taken the right steps i think that are to extend it to april and with a view to having a look at what the situation looks like in April is actually a good way of doing it. It's quite sensible. And I, I, I'm 100% behind what, what he has actually done. Now, uh, the furlough scheme has understandably been lauded for helping preserve businesses, but are there any negatives of the system from your experience that you think maybe isn't getting enough attention in the national discussion? Well, I, I just think that the, uh, the process for smaller businesses uh, is, uh, is an issue with them having to, to you know, uh, go through the the actual paperwork process to actually mm. get the funds is is, is is a challenge for smaller companies. If you're if you're big enough and you've got the staff, it tends to be easier to get to, to, to actually get on the scheme itself. But for, for the smaller companies I think they're they're, they're actually struggling to actually uh, Mm. So get access through. for those smaller businesses, for sure, is something that could well be uh, be looked at. And yeah. over the last few months, what we've seen as well is essentially a constant sort of toing and froing, if we call it that, through what's been a period of intermittent restrictions, if you will, since sort of September time last year. And what do you think during that time the effect has been on people's mental health and morale from your personal experience? And how have you sort of managed that as a business leader yourself, would you say? 
Yeah, I think that that is actually uh, is a key. It's, it's a key key question to ask, and a lot of a lot of uh, people are suffering uh, with, a, with especially with this lockdown. Uh, the isolation uh, is 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 uh, exacerbated. Uh, you're, you're you're locked in. Uh, you can't go out. You're not seeing your loved ones, and I think that that is having a dramatic effect on mental health. And, uh, and you know and it's a difficult situation. Uh, one side, you want to say, you know, uh, I don't think this, that they should let us go out, uh, let us uh, mingle. But then at the same time, you see uh, the death rates, which is yesterday, 1,500 people died yesterday. Mm. You can totally understand uh, where they're coming from in terms of why they're doing this. So I can understand the rationale behind it. And I, and I just feel, I, I feel for these people. I feel for the, the public going through this. But I think that is the only way they're going to get to the other side of this. And I think with the... Uh, the vaccine being rolled out, if that can be, if we can try and roll it out quicker, then, then we'll get there sooner. But I think uh, there, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and that's what's going to keep people going, is the fact that they can see an end, they can see a finish line. That's something that we've not really had before, is it, as well, the sense that there is an end coming to this because throughout the lockdown in 2020 we didn't have a vaccine it was always going to be a question of whether there would or wouldn't be one because we didn't know whether a working vaccine would indeed be generated at that point now there is restrictions are still being tightened but there is a sense that the end is coming so there is some hope for people i think you're very very right and um we spoke actually back in october before the news of the vaccine broke that the role of technology has been very significant over the last few months, hasn't it, in keeping people connected? But still, loneliness is proving to be stoking the fires of anxiety. And you talked a little bit about that just now because we can't visit relatives. We can't really go into our workplaces at the moment either, unless, of course, you are a key worker and you don't have another option. But even when you are in that position and you're having to then go into work, you're having to battle against the anxiety of, well, am I actually going to catch this thing myself? So it's almost a bit of a vicious cycle, isn't it? It is. It is. And I, and I think that, that you know, that is, that is a difficult one. It's a difficult one to overcome. You know, you just have to, we have we have to do what the government say. Uh, we have to play by the rules. And I think that uh, we have to have the hope uh, and have the strength to just keep on going. It's not going to be long. There, there is a, there is light at the end of the tunnel, and I think if we just keep on uh, with that, I know it's difficult for everyone, but we will we will get there. And I and uh, you know I I'd like to come up with loads of things that we can do, but there, there isn't. I mean, we, we basically have to follow the rules. We have to stay in. You can use technology if you've got access to it. So if you've got if you've got a laptop, then you can have a Zoom call with your with your cousin or your with your mom or your dad or or whatever, you can do that. So if you've got the technology, if you haven't, then it's a good old-fashioned phone. Get on the phone and just phone people and talk on the phone. And I think the more the more of that we do, the, it, it just it makes it a little bit easier. It's not as good as seeing someone, mm. but it's, it's the next best thing to it. It is exactly. And there is another way as well that a lot of people have combated lockdown over the last few months. And that's, of course, by getting out and enjoying exercise. And I know that in the winter months, sometimes that can be a little bit trickier because the weather certainly isn't as nice as it was sort of last March and through the summer. Um, but looking back to sort of last year for a moment, um, I understand that the London Marathon was just one of many events that was cancelled. But you actually took part in the alternative version of that event, didn't you? Yeah, I did actually. I've done the, the virtual marathon, uh, which was in uh, October last year. Uh, and that was uh, basically you run your own marathon. So you go wherever you want, as long as you do 26.2 miles. So I decided to leave my house, which I, I live in Ditcham, 
which is uh, South London, and I ran to Tottenham, which is where my mum lives. Mm. Uh, and then from Tottenham, I ran to the West End, and I went to back to Elephant Castle and back South London. So that's the route I took. And to be honest with you, it's a lot harder when you do it that way. Mm. It's a lot harder because you've got, uh, when you do the marathon, you're not running on pavements, you're running on the road. You don't have to go up and down steps. You're not stopping at any lights or anything like that. It's, it was very, very hard to do it. And, yeah, I, and, and also, that day trapped with that as well, So which made it a little bit worse. But I was mm-hmm. so determined that I was going to get that 40th pedal that I was going to keep on going and it really took me 24 hours. Just goes to show, doesn't it, that even though the weather isn't necessarily great, you can still get yourself out there and still have a good sort of 10, 15 minute run if you need to get out and have a little bit of a walk and an exercise, just as long as you're kitted out with the right sort of clothes, umbrella equipment, etc. Um, but just out of interest, and um, when you did do the, um, the, the, the marathon run um, in that sense, um, what were the streets of London like at that point in time? Were they still quite busy or was it were the effects of lockdown, do you think, really being felt? It's strange. It was actually dead. It was, up, it was actually going out. I mean, when I, the only people that was out was other runners. There was there was there was little groups of people, tourists and stuff. When you got to the West End, but uh, throughout the whole journey, for me going from from uh, South London down to North London, it was actually very empty. I then I, I, I did do it in the morning, so I started I started mm. about seven o'clock in the morning. So I even by about nine o'clock, it still didn't. It wasn't it wasn't that big. A lot of people stayed in. There was a lot of people indoors. Uh, but it was it, it was it was raining, so that that puts people off when the rain when the rain comes. Oh, I'll go later. I wait till the rain stops and I'll go chopping them and stuff like that. So people were put off by it, but obviously I had no choice. And <laughs> come what may, of course, with the event this year, whether it will run as planned or whether it is going to be a virtual marathon again, are you looking at running it again? I uh, definitely. I, I think that it probably will get cancelled, and I'll tell you why. They've cancelled the uh, Brighton. The London to Brighton, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, bike ride has been cancelled. So, I, um, unless this that this re- this this vaccine really takes off and they and they get to the key workers and uh, the over the over seventies, if they get all them done and they start rolling it out to everyone else, if it depends on how quickly they do that. If they get that done by April, then there's a good chance that the marathon will be on in October. But at the moment, he's still going ahead as planned. As it's no, it's business as usual until I get an email or a confirmation that it's, it's not happening. Exactly. And we can, of course, be hopeful that by the end of April, we can start to see some things begin to return as what we would know as normal. Um, there have been some reports, including one from the other time as recently, however, that some of the government scientific advisors on the SAGE committee, they have been warning that even when those most vulnerable people have been vaccinated around about the end of April, it's still going to take some time for a wholesale lifting of restrictions to happen. And it still won't necessarily be safe until the autumn time. Do you think that that's something that you can see the government aligning with and you would certainly agree that maybe we need to just be a little bit more cautious until maybe the back end of the year? Yeah, it's, it's a hard one because uh, these businesses, especially the leisure industry, the restaurants and the nightclubs and uh, pubs and everything, it's, they're, 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 you know, they, they're, they're, it's not sustainable for them. I mean, mm-hmm. they, I don't think they, I mean, they can't wait until then. I, I, I think that something needs to be done either with them getting funding or uh, we just need to pray that, that the, you know, these vaccines get well that quicker and, we, you know, and then we can start to, not to get back to normal, but we can start to ease up on the lockdown because businesses are struggling out there. 
They are, and albeit it has been dismissed up until this point, there are some little pieces of speculation starting to surface about the fact that the vaccination programme could become a 24-hour operation. So let's, of course, just keep a close eye on that situation and see whether there is any truth in that. Um, well, that would be fantastic. If they, if they do it over 24-7, 24 mm. hours, that's going to be amazing. They get more people done, more people get vaccinated, or people get detected, or the infection rate starts to go down. Uh, hospitals start to uh, the uh, admissions start to reduce, and I think then it, then you are starting getting into feeling a bit more confident about mm. you know we're now at a stage now where we can open up things or or, or you know ease the restrictions on, on 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 things, and then that's where we get to that that point we need to get to. Exactly right. And we're approaching pretty much a full year now, aren't we, under this new reality? We're now into, of course, mid-January at the point that we're recording this. And it was March the 23rd last year that the lockdown was called and all of our lives in the UK were seemingly changed. Well, what feels like forever, but hopefully it won't be. Um, But looking back at how you and your business in particular, I sumo, have adapted to this last year or so, what would you say this whole experience has actually taught you, if anything? Uh, well, it's taught us to be uh, be more prepared. Uh, you know, be more aware of what's going on, and uh, try and come up with solutions that help people. You know, be a bit proactive in that rather than be reactive. Mm. And I think what we've we've, had, we've, we've what we've we've found is we've, we've we've ended up being a bit more reactive than being proactive. And I think that's because you don't really believe it's going to get as bad as it did. You've kind of got that. Uh, hope that it's, it's not going to be that bad and it did get that bad and I think going forward we're going to try and be a bit more proactive in what we what we can offer businesses to keep them operational while they go through any any situations of like lockdown or working from home supporting the home workers and stuff like that. And to allow that to happen, I think there certainly does need to be a little bit of certainty from those in Westminster as well, doesn't there? Um, Of course, we know that the furlough scheme is going to be here until the end of April. But given the fact that things are changing, sometimes almost on a weekly basis, it can be difficult for businesses to sort of plan ahead anything sort of long term. So do you feel industry does need a little bit more certainty than what it's getting at the moment? Yeah, but we're we're in our... You know, uncharted waters, you know, we have never been through this before. Uh, the last uh, pandemic, which is the Spanish flu, was in, in uh, 1918, where 75 million people died. Uh, and that was over two years. Uh, so, you know, we, we've, we've never been there. So I think uh, it's very difficult for anyone. I mean, uh, Boris, I mean, uh, I feel for him, you know, he's, he's done the best job as he, as he could under the, under, under the conditions. And also the the actual virus is changing as well, so you've got different strains coming through. He has to deal with that as well. So the only way we're really to get around this is to actually get everyone vaccinated. Once we get vaccinated, then we can't spread the disease, and then we can start to see uh, uh, the uh, transmission of the disease reducing. And I think that's where we, where we start to get into a good place. It's interesting what you say about the Prime Minister there, because one thing that I've certainly noted is that there are a lot of people who are always quick to criticise leadership within all walks of life. But then the same people doing the criticising tend to recognise that leaders are often in an unenviable position. So with if we think about that, do you think that leadership is indeed as appreciated and respected as maybe it should be in this country? Yeah, I, I think that it's, uh, it is if it's, if it's done right. And I think 
with Boris, he's kind of, he kind of he's, he's a bit of a people pleaser. I hope he doesn't listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he wants to do the right thing. And sometimes he says, he says the right thing at the wrong time. And some of the things he says, he goes back on as well. So I think if you, you have to be a leader, you've got to stick to what you believe in. And sometimes you've got to be a bit like Maggie Thatcher, where, where you, you, you do it, even if, you, even if it is wrong, you still go through it. And that, she's done that with the protest. So you saw, they all told her not, not, you know, not to roll it out, and she did. She, she went against everyone. Mm. But she believed in herself. Whatever she felt was right for the people and the country, she'd done. And I think that's the leadership. That's where you get true leadership is you do it because you think it's the right thing to do. You don't, you don't, you don't go back on it. And there are a lot of business leaders who'll be doing the same, won't they? They'll be essentially acting on instincts and guiding their businesses through this. And for those companies that do manage to get through, just how easy do you think it's going to be to bounce back from the effects of this pandemic? Because low consumer confidence and the state of the economy are initially going to be lingering problems, you'd think. But getting through such a period of adversity, it's highly likely going to galvanise a lot of firms as well. It would do, but then there are some businesses that have done really well, like Amazon and mm. everything online. Um, they've done amazingly well, eBay, stuff like that. They've done well. So there's, there's always going to be winners and losers in situations like this. And I think the businesses that are going to suffer are going to be the, the businesses of leisure, the, the leisure sector, uh, tourism, uh, that, those re- retail, t- traditional retail. Those businesses are going to still struggle before, and a lot of them are going but, you know, by you know, by the wayside, uh, you've got Debenhams threatening to uh, close to going into administration, and you've got other other big retail businesses that are struggling, and this has actually just made it worse for them. So you you it's it's going to change. It's going to change the way our people buy. The, the patterns of uh, purchasing is going to change. People are more like are happy to go online now, and they never would have done before. So you've got a lot of people that will say, "I love going into shops and and trying to jump on and." And then buying and putting it in my bag and taking it out. Now you're actually doing it online and you have to get delivered by a courier, it comes mm. in, pull it on, I don't like it, and you've got to send it back. So, but they've, they've, they've seen that and oh, easy return policy, things are easy to return and you get your credit and then you do it again. So I think the online business is going to be even more attractive to people, which means that the traditional way of uh, retail is going to struggle. So I, I, I can see our business dynamics and landscape changing because of this pandemic. Yes, I agree. I think the retail industry is certainly going to be much changed compared to what it was uh, before. It was already in a period of metamorphosis, of course. We were seeing the effects of, of course, um, less footfall on high streets, um, traditional bricks and mortar retailers having to rethink the way that they do things and that's certainly going to be accelerated now and we identified when we last spoke back in October actually a couple of other things that we can expect to be here to stay following the lockdown period and they were flexible working and a real rethink of what the modern workplace is going to be are there any other elements do you think of this new way of life that we've experienced that you think will also remain for the long term particularly with regards to a new emphasis on sustainability yeah, I think that uh, the, uh, the property business, so uh, the service office uh, businesses, is definitely uh, worried about how they, their model is going to have to change to be more flexible. No, no, no five, ten-year leases, those are, those are going out the window. And it's going to be more flexible working where you can book. Uh, it'd, be, I, it'd be lovely to book an office like you can book a hotel. But I know obviously that's going to happen. But if you can, 
if you can book an office by the month, I need this office by a month, but I don't need the next month. That's all. And that will happen. And if they, if they don't offer that, then people will, will leave people working from home and just, and just book a Starbucks or something, or even just to book. There, there are service office providers that will provide meeting rooms for you, and you can do that. So unless they change the way they, they offer their services, they're finding that they're going to find that people will, that other people will, other new uh, entrants in the market will come in and take that space because there is definitely a need for flexible office space that isn't that doesn't lock people in. I think you are very right. I think there are many, many new opportunities, new markets to break into that are going to come about as a result of this pandemic. And that is what especially younger people out there will be needing to think about, isn't it? Because out there right now, there will be a lot of youngsters, perhaps freshly out of university, who are looking at the job market and feeling pretty hopeless about the entire situation. So as somebody who helps run a successful business yourself, what words of advice or encouragement would you give to young people to get them to look up, be positive, and really seek out those opportunities to help make the best of themselves during this time? Yeah, I would say be be uh, be positive. Uh, offer your services, uh, you know, there's interns stuff like that. That that is a good way of getting into a company. And I know you're not going to get paid, but you, you get your expenses, and then you're in there, and you can prove what you're worth to that company. So it's a good way of an employer taking someone on and seeing how good that that candidate or that, that potential, potential employee is. Uh, so I would say do that to be, you know, to not, not to give up hope. There's, there are opportunities out there. It doesn't sound like there is, but there is. But you have to work a bit harder and a little bit smarter than other people. So you've got to be ahead of the game. So uh, I would say just be one step ahead. Uh, use, use LinkedIn, use... Uh, Use the, the some job job sites. Even use your family and friends. You know, sometimes you could get recommended through that way. So there are there are ways. You've got to be a bit more in, innovative in in your approach to getting a job. Now you can't just do the old traditional approach that has to change because uh, everyone is doing that. And you need to be a bit that different. You've got to be a bit more daring as well in, in how you how you get that job and how in how you communicate with an employer to tell them how good you are. And make sure that your social media is also up to scratch because a lot of employers like to snoop around and look at your your pictures or what type of person you are before they even take you on. So make sure that's more professional. Put a bit of effort into that, tidy it out even before you start looking. I think one of the key words you mentioned there was the I word, innovation. And we've seen that within business, certainly on an unprecedented scale over the last few months. And I think we do need to continue to see much of that, more of that on a universal level going forward. And that very much underpins iSumo's own mission, doesn't it, innovation? Because you mentioned when we last spoke in October as well, that your mission over this year will be to continue to help businesses adapt to the new way of working and really become these workplaces of the future. Now, three months down the line from that discussion then how would you say that mission of yours is going and what else do you think is on the horizon for ICMO over 2021 yeah i think it's gone really well what we've done is we've we've enabled businesses to operate in the cloud have have their business their their business servers their business information in a central place where they can ex- access that information from anywhere uh, when we've achieved that, we've uh, we've done a deal with some major data center providers, uh, which which enabled us to offer these services to our customers, and they they absolutely love it. Now, three months in, 
they're, 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 they're scratching their head thinking, well, why is it taking me so long to do this? I've now cut costs. I don't need a team of IT people to manage it because, because we're doing it for them. So their costs are reduced. Uh, they've got a better service. It's a wake up 24 hours a day, accessible from anywhere. So uh, we, we are glad that, uh, you know, we, we, we were able to get in there and come up with these solutions that actually make their business better to not just make, make stuff a bit of money. It's about us winning the business, but it's about us providing a service that is profitable for us, but adds a value to that business and helps that business become more profitable because that's how, well, that's how they stay with you and they also recommend others. So we've, we've done very well in that regard. Mike, it's been an absolute pleasure having you back on the show. We're just about out of time today, but I have to say I'd have no hesitation welcoming you back onto the programme in future to share your insight for a third time once we start to see the situation become a little bit clearer. Fantastic. It's been absolutely amazing uh, talking to you, and uh, thank you uh, to you and also all the viewers out there. Be positive. We will get there, and we will get to the the end of this, and uh, the future will be bright for everyone. I'd also like to reiterate that message to everybody tuning in today as well. Do please continue to be sensible, look after yourselves and do stay home where you can because it does make such a critical difference in keeping people safe during this most trying time. It was a pleasure welcoming Mike Newell, Sales Director at iSumo, back onto the show and I do hope you all enjoyed the interview. Next up, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive feature with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett has been a peer since the year 2015, following a distinguished political career during which he held a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. And he did all of that despite being blind from birth. I do hope you all enjoy the interview just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself, and that is coming up now. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the, the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. 
Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the 
the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and. Um, and the U.S., and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And 
one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, Does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to to demonstrate their capability. So I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, Well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, Rightly so. Um, Now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and and real, 
on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticise the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well in scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly 
there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, 
who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning 
Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm-hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. 
Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.